before I get to my sermon, I just want to say that the journey that began for me, anyway, last July, after a Facebook post, um, when Paul Miners said, would you think about this? And Celeste and I prayed about it, we said yes, and so we started that journey that got us to arrive here in Scotland last Wednesday. Um, and so we are excited. We have a number of friends and family who are praying for the ministry, uh, who know about it, who give to it, support it. Uh, and it's just been a, a marvelous time to see how God is at work. And so today, in our mind, is kind of a very special milestone. Um, a friend of mine from my young years, a man who became more famous than I ever will be, uh, Timothy Keller, said about preaching that you have to be message-centered and audience-sensitive. And so the longer I'm here, the more I will understand you as an audience, you as people and your needs and what's important to you and all of that kind of consideration that a pastor has to have as they preach, as they delicately perform that surgery on the soul through the Word of God. And so pray for me as I listen to you, as I learn more about you, as I learn about your families and your neighbors, your challenges, and things like that. So let me pray, and then we'll begin. Father, again, we ask that you would take the Word of God and bring it into our hearts in a fresh way, that you would renew and revitalize us, that you prepare us for the week, that you would help us to see you in all that we do. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Most of you probably know the story behind the, the Lord of the Rings. That epic book is the way it started off. But when Tolkien took it to his publisher, he said, it's too big. We need to divide it into three books. And so it became a trilogy. And then when they put out the movie, it was a trilogy. <coughs> The other day, as I was learning and reminding myself about England and Scotland, I came across a thing that Shakespeare was the first person in the English language to create a trilogy. And that was with his play series on Henry VI, which he wrote the second part, the third part, and then the first part. Sometimes, like modern authors do, they get you interested in the story, they tell a little bit, and they go back and say, well, here's some more background. And then what did you do after that? He wrote Richard III, which they say is probably the first play about an anti-hero, because he certainly was not a hero to the Tudor audience that Shakespeare was giving. Now, the context of that 10-plus years when Shakespeare was writing his plays, when Richard basically created what we think of as the Tudor franchise, when he would tell the stories of the Tudors and their enemies, because they were in this time when Queen Elizabeth I was in her 60s. No child, no heir. Now, she had a succession plan. She was not leaving this up to chance. You know, James VI from Scotland was going to come down and become James I. So they could have peace in the 1600s. Now, it kind of worked out, right? Because you have the English Civil War, Cromwell. You have the Glorious Revolution. You have all these things. So that political anxiety, that anxiety about the future that's related to the ruler, that translated into that, what we think of as transition anxiety, is something that I see in my own country. 
Because everybody says we're in for change. Things are changing. We don't know where they're going. Now, I've been reading BBC and then BBC Scotland and The Guardian and a few other local papers to realize that you have questions about your future in terms of Brexit and whether Scotland should be an independent country or stay in the United Kingdom. And a lot of that has to do with our identity. It's also a time when literally millions of people are migrating. They're moving from their place of birth to something else looking for a better life. Now, I brought up the trilogy idea and the identity idea because I think they're rooted in Psalm 95. I'm starting, because I planned out my preaching for 11 weeks while I get to know you. Psalm 95 is one of those passages that reaches back in this case, it reaches back to Exodus 17. That's our subject sermon text for next Sunday. When the question was, in the middle of the desert, after all the things that they had been through, is God really here? Did God really come with us? And then, it has a sequel in Hebrews chapter 3 and 4, where some of the verses are quoted three times. And so to the writer of Hebrews, what is said in Psalm 95 about listening and about not finding rest, which we would translate in our culture about anxiety. And so you have this, what I call this trilogy, that we're looking at the center part before we look at the prequel and the sequel that are all tied together. Now, if you have your Bibles, look at verse 7, because that is what I think is the anchor verse, because it deals with the identity of the people of the psalm. And what we have to remember is this psalm was written for the church, for the covenant community, for the people of Israel, and for their worship. It says, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the sheep, the people of his pasture, and the sheep of his hand. Now, I'm using the internet evangelical um, standard version. I realize most of you, this is um, the NIV. But what we need to notice, first of all, is that in, in identifying us as the sheep of his hand, he is using that sheep metaphor that um, was used of Jesus Christ. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world when he is introduced by John the Baptist. When he is identifying himself, and we'll see this in the later sermon series on the I Am's of Jesus, he says, I'm the gate. In other words, he's the gate for the sheep. He's also the good shepherd. So he is both the sacrifice and the shepherd in thinking about sheep. But the statement is, he is our God. That, what's, that is what unites us. That's what gives us our identity. He's not who we are, but who he is. We are his people, his sheep. Notice that it's his pasture. Because I think that in today's world, oftentimes people 
are so identified with their place, where their roots are, that they get their identity from that rather than from, from God. Now, I was reminded in a conversation with David about the Highland clearances that disrupted and dislocated people because England needed more wool for the factories. And so they cleared farmers off and turned it into sheep land. And you have people that remember that. Now, I come from a family, when my family left eight generations ago from Scotland, nobody in my family has ever had their children in the place where they were born. We seem to have this gypsy, this, you know, roaming adventure. Um, and when I baptized my uh, grandchildren, the 10th generation, the thing, same thing was true for them. That they weren't born where their parents, or in their case, my three, three daughters were, were born. So when we look at this passage, we see that it's about creation, and it's about communication. And both of those are an expression of, of God's grace, of his love. Now, we could have some technical discussions about whether creation is an act of grace, but it certainly is an act of love. It certainly is a way of God expressing his desire to create someone, to create people in his image. And so we were created to worship as a community. We were created to listen to our creator who communicates. Some of us went to a very interesting discussion about creation last night. But from a Christian perspective, one of the things when we talk about creation, we talk about the creator, the God, as Francis Schaeffer would have said, the God who is there. But he's also a God who communicates. He is there and he is not silent, Schaeffer would say. And so as this passage is, we'll look at it, we'll see we were created to listen. So let's look at the call as a community to worship in verses 1 through 6. Now, I, I use the word community because he uses the phrase, let us, six times in the six verses. He's addressing a community. It's not just individuals. It's individuals who come together and form that us. And so when we look at the actions of worship in this, you are to, you know, you know it starts off. Let us sing to the Lord, and I will say I am very thankful for the way you sing. It's, it's, it's very, very encouraging. Because I'm in the second part, make a joyful noise, that's used twice, so that has to encourage, you know, but you are to be out there doing that. And, and the attitude is to be one of thanksgiving, it says. And it's to be done with songs of praise. And so you think of ways of, that we can praise God, that we can, we can thank him in our, in our worship. Now you look at some of the things we're called to do in our culture, you know, getting people to bow down, to kneel before God, to be humble. Because that's what it's asking us to do, is to humble ourselves before God. Because he is he is our maker. And part of what this passage tells us is that we do this in his presence. 
that God is here. Where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there, Jesus said. But the Psalms remind us of worshiping and being in the presence. And we are in the presence of God because Jesus is both our great high priest and the sacrifice, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now, there's an interesting phrase that the psalmist uses there at the end of verse 1, the rock of our salvation. Now, we know who that is from 1 Corinthians chapter 10, because Paul says, for they drank, and, and this is just, I think, you know, it's fascinating to pay attention to the actual words of a passage. For they drink, or drank, from the, of the spiritual rock that followed them. You see the images? You've got a rock that's following them. It's a spiritual one. And that rock was Christ. And so when you have this tying together of the Old Testament stories about what God was doing in the New Testament, and to see Christ present there, because after all, in verse 6, it reminds us that the Lord, using his covenant name, is our maker. Now, I'm the new guy in town. And I don't know what you see when you look all around you. But when I read verses 4 and 5, In his hands are the depths of the earth, the heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hand formed the dry land. I mean, you live in a place where every day, almost every drive, you can see mountains and sea together and see this as evidence that God has created what is around you. And so not only should you see beauty, but you should see the creation, the handiwork of God in the mountains, in the, in the water. To remind you that he is the maker of all that is. That he alone is eternal. And so one of the things that you know I, I pray is that I don't get used to the beauty and, and the dynamic things that I see around here. That sometimes when we live someplace, we can kind of just get so used to the scenery, we forget that God created it. And you have, in my mind, some of these beautiful, magnificent mountains, and these locks and other pieces of water that are just magnificent that Verses 4 and 5 point to. Now, we are not only have a community that was created us to worship together, and that's where we get in our identity. Do you think of your identity as something that, that really begins with that I was created to worship God? I was redeemed to worship God. That is something that is important, but not only was I created to worship God, but I was created to worship God in a community, in a church, with other people. And so that puts a value on the activity of what we do here on Sunday as we gather to worship together. And so our identity is in the fact that we are a community that is called to worship. Now, we're also a community that's called to listen. And I've often thought, and it's not an original idea with me, but think about the fact that God created everything. And what if he just left Adam and Eve to figure it out? 
he had not said anything. He didn't help them understand each other. That God created and then God communicated. And God created us in his image so that we can communicate. And so we're going to look at this passage and we're going to see so the last part of verse 7 what I think of as the, the D line today if you hear his voice do not harden your hearts now that's a very interesting approach isn't it? that's kind of a negative approach he doesn't want us to harden our hearts but what it does is it recognizes from an Old Testament standpoint from Adam and Eve to the people in the 40 years in the wilderness. People had the ability to hear the word of God, but yet they chose to harden their heart. They chose not to listen. We recognize that indeed, as it says in verse 10, they are a people who go astray in their hearts. At the heart of the horrible things and evils that we see in the world, we need to realize that it's people's hearts. That it's what's at the beginning. It's the heart of people. It's what nurtures and changes. And what nurtures and changes us is who we listen to. Now, one of the reasons a couple of commentators say that, that the psalmist put this together is that there was a tendency sometimes to romanticize the 40 years and to say, oh, wasn't that a wonderful time? Because sometimes there are points in church's history that they say, oh, if we could only get back there. And, and what the writer of Psalm 95 wants us to remember is that, hey, those 40 years, and this is what I think is, you know, scary, for 40 years I loathed that generation imagine God writing the footnote to your generation? Loathed. That's what he did. Here were people who had experienced being cared for and saved from the ten plagues, being rushed, carried through the waters of the Red Sea, who were fed manna, quail, water. But yet, they still questioned, they still squabbled with God. And so they want to make sure that they don't romanticize that period. Now, recently, Dr. Graham died, Dr. Billy Graham. Now, he's someone that I had the opportunity in the course of my life trying to go to three different crusades. I have a great respect for him. But I don't expect God to raise up somebody like him again. God is going to do something the way he wants in the next generation, in our generation. Now, one of the things in studying revival in all kinds of places, you know, I'm, I'm 68 years old. Usually God chooses a 20-something to start revival. But I also know that he can change his mind and use an old man. But, don't harden your hearts. Be willing to listen to the word of God even if it challenges some of the things that are very fundamental in your life. Listen to the word of God. And don't harden your hearts. There's a lot of things in life today that can be what, what I call they can, can distract us, 
It can misdirect us. Now, um, some of you, I, see, I know, one of the things I'm going to learn about you is how many of you read newspapers and read news online and things like that. But there's been a study about fake news. Now, that's a word I, I, I hope that most of you know what fake news is. But fake news travels faster and is more effective in reaching and changing people's mind than the truth. Now, as Christians, we shouldn't be surprised that a lie would spread fast and be accepted by people. See, that's what we have to be careful of as, as Christians, is that we really make sure that we are hearing the Word of God, His truth, as it applies to our lives and our culture. But notice that it's also speaking to the community. Now, I'm somebody who very much identifies with, with my generation. Um, the baby boomers, people who were born after World War II. My father came home from the war, went to the University of Alabama, got a job, and had, they had me. You know, they had that little sequence of American dream. But yet, that art, my generation. Now, I haven't looked at the, that generation that was born after the war until the end of the or middle part of the 60s. My generation has had more divorce than it we'd ever seen in America more spouse and childhood abuse, more drug abuse and more suicides than our country had ever seen. That generation. Now, when I look at, because I lived in Southern California in the summer of 67, the summer of love as, as it was called. They really left God behind even though my generation in America produced first what we think of as the Jesus people, a revival among street people and things like that, and then produced megachurches, whatever you think, good or bad, about megachurches, those churches that are over 2,000 people. We produced all of that, but yet all of that didn't prevent the divorce, spousal abuse, drug abuse, suicides, so the question is, when we listen to the Word of God, how can we reach into the lives of our neighbors, into their hearts, so that they start to hear the Word of God by God's grace? Now, in the Old Testament, there are, you know, the Adam and Eve, when they didn't listen to God, Think about the story of Adam and Eve, that, that first story of a man and a woman, and they choose not to listen to their creator. And then you have Pharaoh, who hardens his heart at the cost of the life of his son and so much of the economic life of his nation. Now... What does it mean, and I'm just going to discuss this a little bit, because in two weeks we're going to look at it, 
more in the light through the passage in Hebrews that quotes this, these passages three times. They shall not enter my rest. What I look at that is, that is an expression that they're going to be anxious people. They're going to be people who are going to feel alone. They're going to be people who feel alienated. They're going to be people who will feel angry. When we don't hear the word of God, when we don't enter into his rest, the anxiety, the loneliness, the alienation, the anger comes out in people's lives. Now sometimes people are very good at suppressing it, but then it explodes. There are families in the south of the United States that grow up, grow up thinking that anger is another member of the family because everybody's so angry that it's just always there. Now, as you drive through your hills, remember that we are his sheep. It's his pasture. We're not alone. We don't have to be angry. We can find our rest in him by listening to him. That we are created, we are created as individuals and as a community to listen to the word of God in our hearts and to have that shape our hearts. One of the things that I have a passion for is my generation as we get old. Now, what they tell us is the older you get, the harder it is to get people to change. But you see, I believe that the Word of God, the Holy Spirit, can penetrate 68 and 70 and 80-year-old people, that, that people can change. Because the Word of God is there, it is powerful, it is part of His grace. That we have a God who communicates. Now, what I would like you to do this week, there's kind of a couple things. One is, if you have the time, read through the first 17 chapters of Exodus. If you don't have the time, read chapter 17 to help you get ready for that. The other is to consciously, in your mind, when you drive around and you see the mountains, when you see the sea, to remember that you are the sheep of his pasture, that this is his. That he is our God, our maker. Now, this is one of those sermons that I, I literally have been thinking about this sermon for, for six months. But I never quite figured out how to end it. Because it is about community. It's about what we are and what we will become as a community that worships together and listens to God. And so as you think about praying for my ministry among you and our ministry together, my prayer is that indeed we would have wonderful worship that would be a testimony, that people would want to come and be a part of our worship. And that part of what identifies us as a congregation is that we are people who really listen to the Word of God.
and believe that the Creator has communicated to us. Let us pray. Our Father and our God, we give you thanks that we are able to come together and worship. We pray now that as we end this service and as we enjoy the time together, that we would just give you all the praise. We pray these things, Jesus, in your most holy name. Amen.